Lord, we, we come before you as your humble servants, and we lift all these prayer requests up to you, Lord, and these praises to you. We're so grateful that you are our God, and that we can look to you and recognize that you're with us through every single step that we take, whether we're up on the highest mountain or down the lowest valley, Lord, that you are with us and that you are our God who recognizes when we are going through something tough or going through the joyous occasions that we do. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, Blake, for playing along with us this morning. Thank you, everyone else, for praying. Those of you that are in junior church, if you want to go ahead and head downstairs, you're more than welcome to. If you want to stay up here, you can do that as well. Well, this morning we're going to start in Mark 6. We're going to read through Mark 6, 14 through 29. So you can follow along as I read. John the Baptist beheaded. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still, others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. But Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, because Herod feared John had protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men in Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her, Mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. What a nice gift. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, wow, we got a fun one today, huh? Um, this will be interesting. Um, yeah, let's dive in. So, have you, have, you ever been, have you ever been discouraged? Of course you have. Have you ever been discouraged specifically by the fact that people around you don't believe in Jesus? And, and even more specifically, upon hearing about Jesus, they choose to reject the message of Jesus? Uh, as Christians, if you're here today as a Christian, that grieves your heart. 
right? Because you've come to experience something true about Jesus, and you want other people to experience that truth. And yet, they don't. And that ought to grieve our hearts. That ought to discourage us in, in this, to a point. Not discouragement to paralysis, but discouragement from sadness, and, but motivating us to action. Um, I had a, had a opportunity to, about a month, month and a half ago, to sit down for coffee, breakfast with a friend who, um, who's in that situation. Um, I think where maybe most American people are in, where they've, they've had a religious background, they've had a, even a religious upbringing, and they've, they've learned about Jesus, they've heard about Jesus, they've, they've heard all the stories, and they even allow their kids to go to church and do, you know, all the, all the religious things or whatever. And yet, when you ask them, like I did with my friend, hey, tell me about Jesus for you. Like, what do you think about Jesus? Like, great that you let your kids do stuff and that your wife takes the kids to church, but like, why, why don't you commit yourself to Jesus? And essentially, it was just, well, it's, I, one, I don't really believe, and it's just not, it's, it's, what, what does he do for me? And it was, it, was a whole, it was a whole conversation. It was a good conversation, but it was, it was a sad conversation. I left discouraged. I left sad over, over the fact that my friend would not consider the evidence like we talked about. So today, today we're going to talk, um, we've got three, three, um, three-point outline, if you will, and it doesn't really exactly follow the text. I mean, it does, but here, here's the three things I want to bring out from the text today. First of all is this, again, this question, it's been a theme for the last few weeks, from back from Youth Takeover Sunday a few weeks ago. Who is Jesus? And then last week we talked about that a little bit more as well. And so secondly, the gospel cannot be stopped. We're going to kind of make mention of that. We see that in the text, and we'll see that kind of historically, but holistically throughout the scriptures. And then third, we're going to look at seven life lessons from Herod Antipas. Uh, seven life lessons. There's more, but I, I, I tried to limit it to seven. Seven that maybe stuck out to me especially. So first, let's talk, about, uh, let's talk first about who is Jesus. And uh, as Josh read from Mark's gospel, chapter 6, and we're going to continue on in Mark for some time. And um, let me turn there. I have it on the screen, though, so you'll be all set if you don't want to turn your Bibles. From, from Mark chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 14, once again, King Herod heard about it. We'll talk about what that it is in a minute. Because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miracles, miraculous power are at work in him. But others said, oops, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm messing myself up. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. And then the rest of the story gives us the past, right? It gives us four, this is what happened. This is the story of the beheading. So the story of the beheading is past to the current situation that we're in, which is Herod hearing about Jesus' name becoming more and more popular. So first, let's talk about who is this Herod? Who is this, this guy named Herod? Here, interestingly, Mark calls him King Herod. Um, Mark and Luke, uh, sorry, Matthew and Luke don't give him that title. Uh, they, they refer to him as uh, Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas. We won't find that in the scriptures, but that's who it is uh, referring to, Herod Antipas. Um, he's not technically a king. He was never granted that title from, um, from the emperor. Uh, he actually asked for it later in his life, and uh, the emperor Caligula refused to give it to him. Uh, a little slap in the face there. But um, he's, son, he's one of the sons of King Herod the Great, who you might know a little bit about. 
He is the, um, the, the absolute crazy king who slaughtered all male children under the age of two in Bethlehem because he was so scared of a baby dethroning him. Um, so that's Herod the Great. That's his father. Um, he was a madman. He not only did that in Bethlehem, but he also had his, uh, some of his sons and wives killed because of uh, paranoia. Uh, he also killed the entirety of the Sanhedrin at one point in time. Uh, the Sanhedrin were the kind of the supreme court, if you will, of the Jewish people uh, of the time. So he was a crazy man, a, a crazy ruler. The people uh, despised King Herod. Uh, he was not a Jew either, yet he was ruling over uh, the Jewish people. He was an Idumean, a descendant of Esau. He was also married to a Samaritan. And if you know much about uh, Jewish history, you know that there's not a great relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And so he marries a Samaritan. He himself you know, is, a, is a foreigner, a Gentile, if you will, right? And so didn't go very well the fact that he was ruling over the people. And likewise, his son, Herod Antipas, also was a, um, a son born of the, of the the woman, the Samaritan woman that he married. So that's a little bit of the story of Herod. Herod here, Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas. Um, a little bit about his jurisdiction. You, you really, I'm sorry, you probably can't see this map very well, but maybe you can make out we have the Dead Sea at the bottom. Of course, the Mediterranean Sea. This is the land of, of Israel. Um, you've got the Dead Sea at the bottom. Sea of Galilee is that small blue, or the, the small blue lake up at the top there. And Herod Antipas is the green regions. So he actually ruled in kind of two, two separate sections, if you will. Um, and then his, his two of his brothers, um, rule, one of his brothers, Ar- Archelaus, uh, I'm probably butchering the name, it was the pink region. So he was over Jerusalem and Samaria, Judah. And then um, Herod Philip, who also comes to play in our story, he's the, he's the yellow area up at the uh, northeastern end of the map here. So three brothers divided the kingdom after Herod the Great. Herod Antipas, the guy that we're especially talking about, is in the green sections there, just for some context of where he ruled. So he ruled around Galilee, the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus spent a lot of time. Um, Yet, interestingly, Jesus, maybe just on one occasion, uh, actually just on one occasion, we think, uh, only had one interaction with him. So um, interesting to note there. So that's a little bit about Herod, but let's talk about who is Jesus, because that's the main the main goal for today is to, is to really consider that. So right off the bat, Herod said he had, it said King Herod heard about it. Okay, so what is the it? So you have to go back to, to understand what the it is. And the it is that Jesus and his disciples were doing miracles. They were casting out demons. They were doing incredible things in the name of Jesus. And people were following after Jesus. Luke's gospel, and as well as Matthew's, tells us even more that it was Jesus' name was becoming great, right? Mark says Jesus' name had become well-known. So people were hearing about Jesus. King Herod, or Herod the Tetrarch, heard about Jesus and all that he was doing. And people are proposing. Look, look at what it says back here. People are proposing different ideas of who this Jesus is, right? Some said, it's John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's what, that's what Herod said. If you read Luke's gospel, it says that Herod thought that John the Baptist was raised from the dead or reincarnated in the person of Jesus in some kind of way. Or maybe it was actually John himself going by a different name. Uh, that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others say, oh, he's Elijah. And in a, in a lot of ways, John was Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, right? That John was the Elijah that was prophesied to come from the Old Testament. 
Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. So all these different people are proposing ideas of who is Jesus? Oh, well, maybe Jesus is this. Maybe Jesus is that. Notice what's not on the list. What's not on the list is that Jesus is the Son of God. The only true answer is not on the list. Everybody has opinions about Jesus, don't they? And most of those opinions are wrong. And it's really, really fascinating. Uh, I actually want us to, I'm just going to read Luke's account here from Luke chapter 9. It says, it says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead and some Elijah, others the ancient prophets had risen. And then he said to himself, I beheaded John, but who is this that I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. This is really fascinating about Herod. Herod is, is very interested in spiritual things, and we're going to talk about this in, in, a little, in a little later. But the decision to behead John is haunting him. You can tell. You can just see it, how it's playing mind games with it, within him. It's, it's th- th- that decision that he made is wrecking him psychologically because he's petrified over the fact that, oh, th- this Jesus, maybe it's John. And by the way, this was a, this was a more uh, spiritually open and spiritually superstitious society than we are today, right? Us Westerners, we're, we're the rational people. We're the rational thinkers. We, we tend to kind of push religion and spirituality down, right? And we, we elevate rational thought, but not so in this society. In this society, rational thought was, was, was there for sure, but, but the spiritual realm, there was, there was great amount of openness to what could happen spiritually. So the idea that John the Baptist would come back to life and, and do great things is not crazy at least for that context. Now, there, it's interesting because we have all these different opinions about Jesus, and I was reminded in reading Matthew chapter 16 this week of another time when Jesus himself actually started this discussion with some of, some of his disciples. Do you remember this? Um, here's, here's, uh, here's Jesus in Matthew 16. He, he asks his disciples, who do people say? that the Son of Man is. And they replied the same way, right? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, right? Here's what people are saying about you. All these ideas, right? And everyone's so far away from the truth. But, and then here's the question, isn't it? Verse 15, this is, this is, I think, one of the most pivotal moments in Jesus' ministry. He says, he asked them, but you, who do you say that I am? I love that question, right? Because it's, it's not about what do other people say, what are other people's opinions or thoughts? What's the latest and greatest news story about me? Jesus isn't concerned about what other people think or say or believe. He's concerned about the individuals before him. He says, who, who do you say that I am? What do you think? Because Jesus had a mission, and his mission was to build his church, and so he was instilling truth of who he was to these men. And so he proposes the question, and Peter Good old, good old Peter, right, answered, you are the Messiah. And he doesn't stop there because the Messiah could have just been a man. The Messiah could have just been a normal, a normal guy. He continues, he says, the son of the living God. Not a son of God, but the son of the living God. You are the son of God, the one that has come from the Father. Peter understood. And then Jesus, of course, goes on to affirm what Peter has said. And says, yes, you are correct. And God has revealed this to you. And, you know, on that truth, that, that truth that I am the Son of God, the Messiah, I will build my church. 
So who is Jesus? This is the most important question anyone will ever answer. The ramifications are significantly greater than who you will marry, where you go to school, what job or profession you take on, where you live. Any other decision in life, it doesn't matter as much as this question. This question is the single most important question. So who is Jesus? Well, Let's take a, just a brief look at his life. He healed countless people. He delivered people from demonic possession. He fed thousands of people from one small lunch, twice. He calmed the winds and the waves. He taught with authority. He utterly changed culture for the better, changed the entire world. He raised dead people. He claimed to, me the, to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And then he proved it by rising from the dead. After predicting his own death and resurrection at least six times, It's recorded, historically recorded, that he said he was going to die by crucifixion, and then that happened. And he said that he was going to be raised three days later, and it happened. And 500 people saw him. Jesus Christ is God. It's the only rational explanation for who Jesus is. If not, if not, if you fail to believe the evidence, which you have every right to do if you want, you have to say he's crazy. You have to say he's a liar. So Jesus Christ is God. And the rest of the story, as it will illustrate, when you get down to it, if you're right about who God is, the rest of life follows suit. But if you're wrong, if you get Jesus wrong, all of life is messed up. And I think this story illustrates that that principle well. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He is our Savior and so much more. So now let's let's talk a little bit about the gospel cannot be stopped. Uh, This is a really, really interesting um, point. And you don't necessarily see it here in the text, but you see it holistically, don't you? Here we have the story of Jesus. Herod the Great, right, did everything that he could to, to try to stop Jesus from coming on the scene. He tried to stop biblical prophecy from coming true. And of course he couldn't. And now here, Herod Antipas tries to silence John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, the one who was to prepare the way for Jesus and his ministry. He tried to stop him. He got him arrested and eventually killed. That didn't work. The religious leaders tried stoning Jesus. They tried to slander Jesus. They tried running him off of a cliff. They tried trapping him. They tried mocking him. They eventually settled for just framing him so that the Romans could crucify him. And they actually did that successfully, that last one. Little did they know that that wasn't going to stop the gospel. That only actually helped. Pilate himself, with Herod's approval, by the way, Luke chapter 23, you can check it out, had Jesus crucified. None of that could hold back the power of the gospel. It actually only worked all together for the good so that the gospel would go forth in greater power. Because Jesus rose from death, he conquered death, He defeated the power of sin. He defeated the power of our sin, church. And he made the way available for us to come to God through Jesus. Then the world tried to shut out the apostles, right? Continue the story further, right? Read read the book of Acts. See all the attempts at trying to shut the gospel down. They tried stoning, crucifying, persecuting, sabotaging the church. But the gospel has prevailed. Not only has it prevailed, it has gone out to every corner of the earth. And even still today, I think, I think Wycliffe is holding to their, uh, their thought that by 2050, the gospel, at least the New Testament, maybe the whole Bible, will be translated in every dialect of this world. And that it is an, that's an amazing, amazing feat. Because there, there are still thousands of, I think it's thousands, at least hundreds, 
of dialects that still have, do not have the scriptures in their language. And yet, this gospel goes forth despite all of the opposition. And why is that? I believe it's because it cannot be stopped. That's the only explanation. Because God has shown himself to be behind it. God has shown himself in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to say, this is the truth and my will will prevail. I mean, amen? Is that not the case? Does God's will not prevail in our world? Can you or I stop it? Can anybody stop it? No, it cannot be stopped. The gospel will go forth in power. So what does this mean for us? Okay, the gospel cannot be stopped. That's encouraging. First of all, it should encourage us. What else should it do? I wanna, I'm going to uh, encourage you. I, I don't have this on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, we're going to look at a few verses from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a really fun book. The, the first five chapters, Paul is hammering the point that we are the light of the world, that we are like letters, open letters on display for people to read so that they might experience something of God, that we are, the, that we are clay jars, that we are agents of reconciliation, ambassadors of the king, like all this language of that we have a responsibility to promote Jesus in our world. And so right in the beginning of chapter 4, he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, the ministry of the gospel that cannot be stopped, that will go forth in its power and have its effect, because we were shown mercy, what does it say? We do not give up. We do not give up. In other words, we don't get discouraged. Church, we don't get discouraged when people say no to Jesus. Because we know, like it says here later, let's continue on. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. So church, we renounce sin We renounce shameful acts, detestable acts, distortion of the word of God. We seek the purity and the truth of God's word. We seek to promote it, live an open display of God's truth. And then, verse 3, it says, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What, What is he saying there? He's saying that the gospel will be veiled to some people. To the point where when they are presented with it, when they see it, they don't see it. They might hear it naturally. It's going into their brain, but the, but the Spirit of God hasn't awakened them to new life. There is, and there's a number of reasons for that. One, the very next verse points out that, and this isn't necessarily every case, okay? So Paul says in their case, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is every case where the gospel is veiled. But this is one of the reasons why the gospel is veiled. It says, in their case, the God of the age, who's that? Satan, the God of this age, has blinded them, the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right? So, so one of the reasons why the gospel is veiled to some people and they're not going to believe in the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ is that Satan himself somehow, we don't know how exactly, there's lots of different ways or reasons or different methods that Satan has to get into the minds of people, so to speak. But somehow he has blinded people's minds from seeing and receiving the gospel of Jesus. And not that we're okay with that. Not that we say, oh, okay, well, Satan's doing his thing, so we'll just shut up and be quiet. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying we press on, we openly display the truth of God, but we don't get discouraged when people reject it. 
knowing that there are reasons why they're rejecting it. But there are some who do see the light of the gospel, right? Because he continues on in, in verse 6, God says, let light shine out of darkness, right? And then later on, verse 15, right? As grace extends through more and more people. What is he saying? He's saying the grace of God through the gospel is going to extend into more and more hearts and lives. This thing that, that Jesus started, the gospel, it is going to continue on and it will not be stopped. There will be extensions of the gospel through more and more people. And it will cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. So what does he say, verse 16? Therefore, we do not give up. So what does this mean for us today, church? We don't give up. We don't give up on Jesus. We don't give up on the gospel. We don't get discouraged to the point of just shutting down or, or staying in a demotivated state of promoting the gospel. No, we actually lean into it and say, no, no, God has the victory. He's the one who will accomplish his will. And that very well might be in the people that you're trying to see come to know Jesus. That very well might be your neighbor. It very well might be your coworker, your schoolmate, someone in your life, a family member, a friend. So we keep praying, church. We keep seeking. We keep going to God in request, in prayer. All right, now let's, let's transition to our, our final point. Um, this is our, you know, the practical dynamics of this message. The first half of, of this message this morning is for us to remember Jesus is God and his gospel will not be thwarted. Nothing can come against it. And we should stay encouraged by the power of the gospel because the beheading of John couldn't stop it. Jesus' own death couldn't stop it. It only accelerated it. And even if you were to die over the gospel, like the apostles did, that would only accelerate the work of Jesus. And so let us not be discouraged. Even as the day draws nearer, we should actually be more encouraged uh, to this. So now it's time for us to kind of deal with the, the awkward story, right? The, the kind of messy story of the actual beheading of John. And so let's, let's go there. So let's, let's read it again, um, as painful as that is, because it's a, not, a, not, a, not a pleasant story. But let's read it again, and then we're going to make seven observations um, and... Uh, really take some life lessons. This is practical life application that we can say, yeah, I need to be refreshed that that's not a good idea or that's how I need to think or that's how I not need to think, right? And so that's what we're going to do today. All right, so let's start with uh, verse 17. And Colin, if you could click the slides for me, that'd be awesome. From Mark chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, Well, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests 
He did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner, commanded him to bring out John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Um, for, for royalty, by, by this ancient times standard, this was not totally foreign. This, this is not a story that would make people cringe of that day. Uh, sadly, that's just, hey, read, read, read some history books of this time period and before. Read some history of the Assyrians and the Romans and, and, and you know, awful things that, that, that people in power would do. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a little gut-wrenching, but this is, this is the way it is. And I, for a little more context, not that we necessarily need it, but, um, so first of all, the, the, the idea of this marriage, right, um, there's a lot of history to it, but essentially, Herod Antipas here had, um, had deceptively um, wooed Herodias to himself from his brother um, while they were both at the same time in Rome. And, uh, and that's on a, on a visit diplomatically, I, I assume. And that's when this all kind of started. And then, of course, he ended up uh, marrying her. And, of course, it was illegitimate. But um, so you can imagine the relationship uh, was awkward between he and his brother. Um, and, and actually, there was, there, was, there was a lot to it. Because in order to marry Herodias, he had to divorce his other wife. Who, and that was a political arranged marriage from somewhere from the southeast, I believe it was, or southwest of, um, of, of Israel. And that king didn't like what Herod did to his daughter, so came up against him, almost wiped out. Um, and it, was, it, was a, it was a political mess, this, what he did, just, for, just to marry his brother's wife. So there's a life lesson in that, but don't, don't marry your brother's wife. Um, <laughs> that's not a good idea. Uh, that's not one of our life lessons. Um, secondly, uh, birthdays for, for royalty at this time, the, these were just full-on, all-out orgies. They were um, drunken parties with tons of sexuality. And so you can imagine what kind of a dance um, this probably teenage girl, maybe. I, we're not sure of her age. Um, she goes to her mother to ask, so she's not an independent woman, you don't think. She's probably a, a younger, young woman or even a girl. And, uh, and she was subjected to that uh, or forced to perform, or we're not sure exactly. But it was, a, it was a very sick and twisted and awful and evil environment. And the whole thing reeked of sin. So how do we process this? Let's look at seven uh, life lessons that we see from the life of Herod. First of all, um, I think it's, this one uh, goes without saying. Uh, they all go without saying. Listen to truth and truth tellers. Listen to truth and truth-tellers. One of the things that Herod does here is that he entertains himself with John's teaching. He even liked to listen to him, it says in verse 20. He'd be perplexed. He was interested, right? There was a sense of interest or intrigue there, and yet he was unwilling to allow the truth of God to penetrate his heart. Uh, the book of Proverbs has much to say about this, but uh, just a couple verses. Uh, Proverbs chapter 9 I thought was fascinating here. Listen to Proverbs 9, 7 to 10. And Now, this is not an indictment on John the Baptist, but I think this is interesting. It says, The one who corrects a mocker will bring abuse on himself, 
The one who rebukes the wicked will get hurt. Don't rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke the wise and he will love you. Instruct the wise and he will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and he will learn more. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so, obviously, Herod Antipas here was um, certainly someone who was wicked, and John the Baptist absolutely got hurt. And um, the point, though, again, is not to say, John the Baptist, you shouldn't have rebuked Herod. Um, But the point is to say, boy, you know, People who are wicked and mockers and full of sin, they don't readily and quickly listen to the truth. And so let that be a warning to us to be people who are sensitive to the truth. When people confront sin in our lives, how do you respond? Really, I mean, you've got to ask yourself that question. And maybe that hasn't happened to you in a while, and I feel bad for you if that's not the case, because we need to do that more in each other's lives. But when's the last time someone confronted you about some matter of sin, and how did you respond? How'd that go in your own heart? Because it says that when, you, when a wise person gets rebuked, he becomes wiser still. So when someone confronts you on a matter of sin or a matter of truth, how do you handle it? Proverbs twelve fifteen says, A fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. So, church, let's, let's be people who listen to truth. Let's care about truth more than our feelings getting hurt. Right? Let's have the value system of God, which is what is true, what is right, what is loving, what is good, what is just. That's what matters. Make that your highest value in life, church. All right, second one. Our sinful nature will always resist God's standards. Um, I would say, especially on matters of sexuality, sexual purity, this is one of those kickers that we, we feel it inside our own hearts, even as Christians, and we certainly see it pervasively in our world. I mean, how do we feel um, when we come to Matthew chapter 5, right? And this is the standard of God for our sexuality. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you if you look at someone with lust in your heart, You've already committed adultery in your heart with them. And Jesus goes on to teach. He says, it is better if your right eye causes you to sin, to gouge it out and throw it away. How's that for some graphic teaching from Jesus there, right? It's better if you gouge out your eye and throw it it away than for your whole body to be burned in hell. In other words, you should take your own purity so seriously that you do whatever it takes to honor God with it so that you do not run away from God. Because, let's be honest, sometimes your heart and your sinful pleasures can get in the way of seeking after God. And it will prevent you for not just a season, but potentially your whole life if you let it. If you don't wake up to the truth. And so this life lesson is, so submit to God. Listen to the truth. It's, it's kind of related to the last one. Not just here, but also, and specifically for Herod's case, what does Jesus say about about divorce and remarriage? Matthew chapter 19, right? People try to trick Jesus. They say, well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? What does Jesus say? He says, haven't you read what it says? 
that he created in the beginning, made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his wife and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Herod obviously had no regard for that kind of truth. Herod said, but I want. And that's what the sinful heart says, church. The sinful heart within you says, but I want to God's truth. And we have to beat that stupid voice down in our hearts and say, it doesn't matter what you want, sinful heart. What matters is what God says. Because God, our creator, knows us. He knows what's best for us and he wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is holiness. What's best for us is honoring his word, putting ourselves into submission under his word. And so notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 19. He talks about a man and a woman. So what do you think Jesus would say about our culture today and some of the things going on? Much, yes. (laughs) Jesus would have much to say about it, and he would be canceled. Of course, you can't cancel Jesus. Gospel will prevail. Um, And so um, we take what God's Word says and we make application in our lives. And we say it and we make that application unashamedly. And with conviction, because it's from God. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Let the marriage bed be kept pure. We have to uphold God's sexual pure standard because it's best for us. And now note here, before we get on to the third one, note that the the standards of God are still applicable to those who who don't trust in him. Did you see? John the Baptist, even though Herod was was an unbeliever of Jesus Christ, he didn't even fear God. John the Baptist still said to him, you are not living correctly. Isn't that interesting? Now, this, this dynamic is tricky, right? But it's still applicable. The standard of God is still applicable. They will still fall under judgment. All people have to stand before God on judgment day and give an account of their lives. So therefore, it's important for us to proclaim to others about their sin. We don't just tell them about how they can have life in Jesus, because that, that's ultimately most important, but we also help them understand why they need life in Jesus. And it's because they're lawbreakers. They're sinful. No one stands before God righteous and pure and holy. Nobody. None of us can. There's not a single one of us that deserves I mean, that song, All Sufficient Merit, I love it. Because we cannot stand before God. In our sin, we are condemned. But in Jesus Christ, we are completely forgiven. Our sins are taken as far as the east is from the west. And the grace of God floods in and we become the righteousness of God. And so we don't, we don't worry about judgment anymore. But we must proclaim it to the world. We must tell the world why they need Jesus. We do it with love and respect, and gentleness, and thoughtfulness, and wisdom. But we have to speak it. Okay, third one. Um, Now, you might say, well, Kevin, I don't have a whole lot of power, authority, and position, but you do. You might not have Herod's level, but here's the life lesson for us, is that don't leverage whatever power, authority, position, resources, personality, any kind of, of influence that you have, don't leverage it for evil or for your own self-centered gain. And don't, before you start thinking, oh, I'm I'm nothing like Herod, pump the brakes a little bit. Pump the brakes a little bit. If If you're here and you say, I'm nothing like Herod, 
you got to go back. You got to go back in time a little bit. Or rediscover your own sinful heart in light of the gospel. Because we are all a lot like Herod. And, and don't, think, don't think that you're immune to using and leveraging your influence, whatever influence it, it is, whatever position you might have, whatever relationships you might hold, don't think that you will, won't in some way, shape, or form leverage whatever influence you have to get what you want in life. It might not be to get your brother's wife. <laughs> Hopefully it's not. But don't think that you're beyond doing that. And remember, the standard of sin in God's eyes is if you leverage your influence to get someone else's wife or if you leverage your influence to get some small thing, even 20 bucks from somebody, it's, it's still sin because you are a deceiver. You are a self-centered person if you do that. So let's not. That's the, that's the point here, right? Don't leverage whatever power, influence, or authority you have. Consider 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 16. A little bit of a different context. He's talking about our freedom in Christ here. He's talking about how we are free in Jesus Christ, but yet we still need to submit to every human authority. Right? We still need to live according to what God says we should do. And, and he, start, he starts by saying, you know, submit to every human authority. It's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then he says this, submit as free people not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. So we need to be very careful about using our freedom in Christ, using our influence in any way, shape, or form for anything other than the honor and the glory of God. All right, the fourth one. Uh, Don't just like hearing the truth. This one goes back to the first one a little bit but instead allow it to take root in your life. Live it out. See, Herod's first problem was that he, he, he listened to truth, but he didn't take it in. He, he, he was okay hearing the truth, but he wasn't willing to let it take root in his life and to live it out. Jesus talks a lot about this one in John chapter 15, doesn't he? As well as in Matthew chapter 7 at the very end of his Uh, Sermon on the Mount, where he says, if you listen to the words of mine and apply them to your life and live them out, you are like the wise man who builds his house on a rock. But if you listen and don't apply it, you're like the foolish man who builds his house on sand. And when the winds and waves come, that house is going to collapse. Your life will be destroyed, not just temporally, but eternally when you build your life on your thoughts or perspectives, when you, when you hear God's word, but then you don't choose to apply it. So we need to be like people who listen to God's word and apply it. Church, this is the danger for us here today. Because I know, I've, I've, we've all, well, I shouldn't say we all have, but if you've been a Christian for more than just a, a few months or a few years, you know the danger. I've heard this sermon before. I've sung this worship song before. I've prayed before. I've done this. I've done that. This is the monotonous thing that we do every week. And the danger is you get used to hearing the truth and your heart is shut off. You turn your heart off. Your, your, your head is still kind of working, but it doesn't make it down. It doesn't make it down to the, to the soul because you've, you've, you've said no to the Holy Spirit so many times that your conscience is seared and the Holy Spirit's like, okay, well, you're so hardened, I, I'm just, hello? You, you can't hear the Spirit of God. That's the danger. That can happen to the Christian. 
It's the difference between being filled in the Spirit and being quenching the Spirit. Church, that's a real and scary place to be. The quenching of the Spirit, where you're consistently not filled with the Spirit. You're not soft towards the Spirit. You're not moldable by the Spirit of God. Ready to listen and hear what He has to tell you, and then change if need be. When's the last time you've made a significant change in your relationship with God, in your lifestyle? I would propose to you, just knowing my own sinful heart, I would propose to you, it ought to be at least a few times a year where we take a significant step of change in our lives. It really ought to be, church. So don't just like hearing the truth, allow it to take root. And if you're here today, maybe this is the thing for you. If, that's, if, 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 you, if you say, yes, Kevin, that's, that I've struggled with that. I've, I've been dull. I've dulled my senses to the Spirit of God. Maybe that's your application point today is you need to repent. You need to say, oh God, would you make my heart soft again? Would you allow me to, to hear from you? Would you open my will up to yours that I might live according to your truth? Um, the fifth one is don't make rash or thoughtless promises. You might say, well, yeah, Kevin, of course not. Um, but this, is, this, one's, this one's, you know, maybe more subtle than you might think. Because Jesus said, let your yes be yes, your no be no. So even if you're not swearing by an oath like Herod did, right? He was probably mostly drunk, if not totally drunk when he said that anyways. So what good is his oath there? But even if you're in your right mind, when you say something, understand that words are powerful. We, we've got to understand that. Just, just remind yourself afresh of that today, that your words are powerful. And what you say means something. I need to remind myself that. So don't make rash or thoughtless promises. I always think of that one story in, in the Old Testament. It's, it's a really awful story. Some of you are, are thinking of it, right? Where the guy said, the, the, this, this man says, I, haven't, I didn't read it. It just actually came to me just now. But the, uh, the guy says, oh, what, the first thing that comes out of my house that greets me is a, is a, is a sacrifice to you, God. And it's his daughter. And it's just like... What, what are you doing saying that, right? And, and in that culture, to go back on your oath, to go back on something you swear on was a greater evil than doing the evil that you swore. It's, and it's an awful story. It's, it's incredibly sad. The other thing um, I would say on this one, well, we'll, we'll get to it. So a, a couple scriptures, Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs 13, verse 16. Every sensible person acts knowledgeably, but a fool displays his stupidity. Proverbs 18, verse 13. The one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and a disgrace for him. Now, the principle there is think before you speak. And this is especially difficult if you happen to be a more impulsive person. Um, th th this can be an, a matter of personality. Some people just tend to, if they have a thought, they just have to speak it out. Um, but we need to learn the discipline of thinking before we speak. James says the same thing, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak. All right, uh, sixth. I think we know this one. 
one bad decision can snowball into one giant mess that doesn't stop. We all have that, you know, cartoon picture in our minds, right? We all grew up on these cartoons, right? Where the, well, we didn't all grow up on them, but I did. Um, where the, the little snowball starts, and then it starts rolling, and then the next thing you know, it, a tree gets caught in it, and then a person gets caught in it, and then like a house gets caught in this big snowball, and it keeps going down the mountain, right? And things keep on getting caught up in this big snowball, and then it crashes, and then everything comes out, and, and they all just kind of splatter all over the place. But that's how, this, that's how these things can work. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you experience this, and maybe, and maybe more, more than anything else, we experience this in what starts out as a lie, right? We've had this experience, especially as kids, right? Let's be honest. I can't be the only one in here who has had this experience where I lied to my dad or mom about something, something insignificant and small and tiny, and then, and then they ask another question, and I'm like, huh, how do I have to now pivot and cover up my cover-up? And so then I cover up my cover-up, and then I have to cover up my cover-up of the cover-up, and it just snowballs from there until all of a sudden you've lied five times and then it gets found out and now you're in big trouble as opposed to just small trouble if we just confess our sins. That's one of the biggest things I try to teach my, my children and other people uh, as it relates to lying is that man, it's always best to just tell the truth right away. It just is. It just is. One bad decision can just snowball. Obviously for Herod, Started with marrying his brother's wife. Not a very good decision. Um, then he arrested John. He makes this stupid promise at his crazy birthday party. And then he gives in to the awful request. And this leads us to our last point, which is don't care about what other people think. Doing the right thing is always the right thing. Because notice at the end of the story in, in Mark's gospel, he says that because of the guests that were there, he fulfilled the oath. The guy was out of his mind when he made the oath. He was in this drunken stupor. This girl danced provocatively before him. He was pleased, which does in the Greek actually refer to a kind of sexual arousal. He was pleased with it, and so he said, Oh, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half. The guy was out of his mind. When he came to himself, when he realized her request, I imagine he kind of, I don't know about immediately sobered up, but at least half sobered up to the point where he understood, oh, I just made a huge mistake. I shouldn't have promised her anything. Or I shouldn't have promised her almost everything. It, I, I would say, and obviously today we've, we've advanced, right? We understand now that if you make a stupid oath or a stupid promise, if, if it is something that will lead to greater destruction or evil, man up to your promise or woman up to your promise and say, hey, I made a mistake. I can't fulfill that. I can't do that. That's what he should have done. Doing the right thing is always the right thing, even if there's pressure from other people, even if someone else says, oh, no, but it would be so fun, right? We've all been there too before, right? I remember specifically one thing. I was like, I shouldn't be doing this, but the buddy that I was with was like, no, no, let's do it. Come on. Yeah, we should totally do it. I'm like, okay, let's do it, thinking that it was a good idea. And I was like 23 at the time. I should have known better. <laughs> so even if there's pressure, even if it feels right, we shouldn't do evil. We should do the right thing. We need to have pause. We need to be people who learn to think before we act, think before we speak. I love this verse in James chapter 4, and then we'll, we'll make some, a couple application points and close. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, so it is sin to know the good that you should do 
and yet not do it. When you know that you should do good, but then the other voice over here says, ah, but it'll be fun. Or maybe it's your friend, or maybe it's you know, somebody that's saying, oh, no, no, but we, it'd be great. We need to listen to the voice of truth. So don't care what other people think. Do the right thing. It's always best to do what God says. All right, so just a couple application points. Uh, first, I think today, if, if, this is, if this is for you, um, we need to commit afresh to align our lifestyle with God's heart. Maybe you've been ignoring the, the voice of the Spirit. Or maybe, or maybe you've been just in, in, in one of these seven ways, you've been like Herod. Maybe you've been ignoring a friend or a family member who's been telling you, hey, this isn't right. You need to work on this in your life, man, like, or, or girl. You know, like you gotta, you gotta change something, right? Maybe there's some sexual sin that you're hiding. Look, I was gonna say there's no shame. There is shame, but there's no shame. Who in here doesn't have sin, right? Can we all agree that we're all messed up in our sinful selves? So if you have sin today, which you do, why not confess it to somebody? Right? Why, why, why be like Herod and keep ignoring the voice of truth and just keep living on your life the way you are happy with? Let's deal with our sin, church, if we have it. I pray, I pray that that's, that's not many, but I imagine there's a few of us in here who maybe need to have some time of confession today with somebody or maybe at least with God. I would encourage confessing to one another because that's, that's what God says is best. It says, confess your sin to one another so that you may be healed. There is a healing that takes place when you unload the burden of your sin, not only to God, but to someone else. I, I, would, I would propose to you that there is no healing without confession. God will allow you to, to stay on in your misery of, of letting sin control you if, you, if you will. So, commit afresh to align your lifestyle with God's heart. I love what John the Baptist says, ode, ode to John here. Um, he says in Luke chapter 3, he's talking to people and, he, and he's telling them, great, you believe in God. Great, you've repented. I've baptized you. Start producing fruit that's consistent with your repentance. Right? You say that you trust in God. You say you love Jesus. Live like it. Don't allow sin to have any foothold in your heart. If it does, deal with it. This is so important, church. We must be a church that promotes and is passionate to be holy as God is holy. That's what we're called to. So secondly, um, to go back to the beginning of, of the message, don't be discouraged when people around you don't believe in Jesus. Remember, nothing is going to stop God from fully accomplishing his plan. The gospel will not be silenced. It will prevail. It cannot be stopped. Why? Because Jesus is the way to God. He is the truth. He is the only hope of life. If anyone wants to come to God, it's only through Jesus, as he himself said. So let's do what the great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, encourages us and come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory because great things he has done. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. God, I give you praise that you saved us, that you've set our feet on solid ground. You've given us an anchor for our souls and our lives. It's the truth of your word. It's the person of Jesus yourself. Thank you, God, for not leaving us to our own 
devices, our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own motivations, but you have planted within us a new heart. You have made us totally new in Jesus Christ for those of us who know you. And God, if there is someone here who doesn't yet know you and they, that's not their experience, they don't have a new heart, they, they don't experience these things that we're talking about, there's no desire for repentance, there's no desire for worship or to live under your truth, oh God, that you would move them right now to be bothered by that. May that not sit well with people today. And God, if there is sin in our hearts, if there is if there's some element of guilt or shame, Lord, may we lay it down at your feet. May we deal with it, God. Because you promise and you have forgiven us of all of our sin if we're in Jesus Christ. And so, God, may we run to you afresh, knowing that you've taken our shame, you've taken our sin, you've taken our guilt. We are completely and totally free in you. God, remind us of these things so that we might live as we ought. And so, God, we worship you. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our all and all, and there is nothing that we have but Jesus. And so we give you all praise and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, this last song that we're going to sing, uh, I just want to re- read these lines. Let, let, let's worship Let's worship for what Jesus has done. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. Is that your experience of Jesus? To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Let's sing this out with conviction, church, if this is true of you. And if it's not, make this a time of prayer. And cry out to God for this to be true of you.